joy to be with you again this morning. I, I've longed to be with you, longed to share what the Lord's laid on my heart this week. We are back in Colossians, and we are moving through this great book, and we've seen quite a bit so far as we've gone through. We, we've seen how the Apostle Paul has, in an effort to refute the false teachers that were coming into the church, he has demonstrated, he's emphasized the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ over all his creation, over all the new creation. He's emphasized the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for you in your daily lives, for these believers in their lives. He's attacked the asceticism, the legalism, the mysticism of the teachings of the false teachers. And then in chapter 3, he began a section on the practical Christian living. And if you'll look, if you already are in Colossians with me at verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that sentence begins this section, and that is the emphasis. In other words, if you are a Christian, if you have been born again, then you shall do what? You shall live out your faith. We do not simply, sorry, we are not simply Christians because we believe a set of doctrines, right? We demonstrate that we have faith through our actions. And that is what we've been going through over the last many weeks. We've been looking at chapter 3. And Paul says right at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, if you're a Christian, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. We use that Puritan term, your affections, what you love, what you long for. If you're a Christian, your, your affection should be a heavenly affection, not a worldly affection. And he says also, he says, set your mind on these things above. So it's, it's a heart affections. What you desire, what you long for should be Christ, should be in the heavens. Your future kingdom, or future kingdom of Christ, your future home with Him. Your mindset should be focused on these things. And if your affections and your mind are focused on the things above, it affects how you live. It affects your relationships. It affects the fact that, first of all, Paul says in chapter 3 that you will put away sin. You will mortify the fleshly desires. If your affections are on Christ and His Word, on, on, on the things that await you in the inheritance, then when the impulses to sin pop up in your hearts, you will mortify that flesh. You'll kill it. You'll put it aside. You'll replace it with thoughts that are pure and holy. You'll put aside that, that anger, that lust, you're being, because you're being renewed. You're being renewed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then he says you have a new identity. He says no longer is your identity based on what you were, whether it's the ethnicity you're no longer to associate your identity with those groups, those ethnic groups, those religious groups, right? those social groups, those financial groups. You are a new creation in Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. That is your identity. That's the only identity that will remain forever. It's a new identity. 
And then he deals with, and, and, and I titled this, this, these last few sermons uh, the 101 series. Because in the States, when you go to uni, you, the basic classes, the starting classes are, are the 101 classes. They're the basics that you have to learn to move on to, to bigger and better things. We dealt with body life 101 in verses 12 through 17 and how we're to be compassionate towards each other. We're to forgive each other, bearing with one another, knowing that we're all sinners. We're to, we're to love each other because that's the bond which holds us together as the body. Right? Our identity, we're di- very different from different backgrounds, but it's the love of Christ in our hearts that binds us together. In verses 14, chapter 3. And then he says the peace of Christ would, would rule in our hearts. It's Christ's peace that helps us maintain that unity. And then he says the Word of God dwell within, within each one of us individually and corporately. But he culminates with a new purpose. That new purpose is in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed... You do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're doing something in somebody's name, what are you doing? You're doing it so they receive the honor. They receive what? The glory. So to, to echo the Westminster Confession, what is the chief end or chief purpose of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay? So that's your purpose. You have a new purpose, a new identity. And so that affects your relationships. And as we talked about, we went through and we, we discussed marriage 101 and how wives are to be in subject to their husbands as fitting the Lord. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's a picture of, of the relationships of Jesus and the church. That's what marriage is to be. We talked about how that relationship is, is affected by the gospel, by forgiveness, by love, by submission. Because we all submit to authorities in our life. We're commanded to. We submit to the government. We submit to God. We submit to Christ. Wives submit to your husbands. Slaves submit to masters. Children submit to their parents. We submit to our employers. Right? We submit to different people in authority over us. And so we talked about parenting 101. We talked about fathers and parents and how they to help raise their children with a, with a goal towards salvation, not conformity to a series of external laws and commands, but gospel conformity. In other words, helping their little hearts to understand their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. We, we wanted to understand the dangers of raising Pharisees. And finally, what we're going to get to this morning as we, we're dealing with the, the 101 series, if you will, in Paul's teaching, we're going to deal with the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, we don't have slavery in the Western world. There's no slavery in Australia, right? But there are principles that we can take from this passage and apply to a modern work relationship between employer and employee. And those principles are what we're going to look at today. Now, we have to be careful to drop down in the context of the world that it was written. We're going to do that this morning. And there are things that are specifically for slaves and masters. But we can take these principles and we can apply them. And, I hope, and I, my prayer is that you will find that this will be honoring to God and you will find that this will be helpful for you in your work relationships. Now, I read just very recently 
from the Ethics Resource Center. They do, they do surveys in the United States on work and work-related statistics. And then they, they did a, a big survey, and they found in 2018, 47% of their respondents observed conduct at work that either violated the law or that organization's standards. Observers said that two-thirds of the incidents were a reoccurring or ongoing pattern that they saw. Their most prominent misconduct that they saw was the telling of lies. Telling of lies to external shareholders or stakeholders, or actually telling lies to other employees or, or bosses. In 2018, the percentage of respondents who said that they reported misbehavior to their bosses it rose to 69%, the highest level recorded. The leading misbehaviors, including the misuse of confidential information, the accepting or giving of bribes or kickbacks, stealing, offering or selling products that failed the specifications that they were selling, and, and also others of successful harassment and the like. Now, for us as believers, we're not really surprised as those statistics. For most of us, if not all, we've seen or heard behavior like that at the jobs that we have. Right? We either talk to somebody who can give us an example or we've seen it ourselves. And we're not surprised because we know that sinners sin. We know that people do wrong. We know that people only live for themselves. And even if their actions are altruistic, they're still their motivations are governed by self-preservation, self-aggrandizement, and self-pleasing. That's, that's the motivations of the earth, because that's the motivations of natural man. But what about believers? We're, we're no longer, what, like we used to be. Right? We've been renewed. We've been born again. How are we to live and navigate this work environment? How do we, mo, excuse me, how do we navigate this this treacherous waters, if you will, without shipwrecking ourselves? How do we as an employee respond to a bad situation, a bad boss, a hard working environment? What are Christ's expectations for you? And if you're an employer or a boss, what are Christ's expectations for you? Well, today we're going to be looking at Paul's directives to slaves and masters. And now, like I said, we, you may not we may, uh, there may not be any slaves, and some of you may feel that way. It's a very different world, right? So we have to be careful. But we're going to look at these principles, and we're going to draw these out, and we're going to look at four aspects this morning. We're going to look at the meekness in your work, the manner of your work, the motivation of your work, and the master of your work. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we're going to dig in this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on the earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. For whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So the, the first point, the first aspect 
is Paul tells these believers that they should have a meekness in your work, a meekness in their work. These slaves, he says, look, slaves, obey in all things those your masters on the earth. Now, first of all, when you deal with slavery in the Roman Empire, we need to clarify, you need to understand that slavery was ingrained in their culture. I read estimates upwards of one-half to two-thirds of all the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Right? This, it was, Romans were an equal opportunity enslaver. It wasn't racial, it wasn't ethnic. They would enslave anybody. They'd conquer you. As part of the spoils of war, a part of the population became slaves. Right? It didn't matter. They didn't care. But the slaves, according to Aristotle, were considered property with a soul. So you were the property if you were a slave of the master. Now, one of the things about slavery, if you were a household slave, and that's primarily who the Apostle Paul is talking about today, or in, excuse me, in Colossians today, is that you were considered in some ways a higher step above a normal field slave because you were considered part of the family. That's what makes Onesimus' betrayal in the book of Philemon so terrible. Philemon who the church actually met at his house, we find out. His slave, Onesimus, ran away and stole money, but he was part of his household. He was considered part of his family. He would have been treated very well. He would have had elevated status, elevated trust. But Paul does something very interesting here. Just like earlier when we talked about how Paul addressed women, he addressed wives directly in a group setting, which wasn't done. He addresses slaves directly in a public place. He didn't address slaves. You might address children, you might address men and masters, but you didn't address slaves, just like you didn't address women. So he elevates slaves to an equal status. Each one of these different groups that he addresses, they're all equal in their identity in Christ. So he elevates slaves. But he says, look, he says, obey in all things. It's a a regular, habitual obedience that these slaves were to practice. They were to do it in a submissive attitude. And that's why I I made the point of, for us, it's a meekness in our work. A meekness is an an attitude of submission. We're, We're obedient to what we're told to do. And he makes it very specific. He says, your masters own this earth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, the first obvious thing is that we're not slaves and we don't have masters, but our relationships with bosses and employees, there's still an authority present. And we are to show a meekness, a submissive attitude when it comes to those that are in charge of us. Right? They should never hear the words, if we're an employee, that is not my job. That was one of my least favorite phrases as a boss to hear my employee say, that's not my job. No, your job is to, is to help the success of the business that you're in. That's your job. Your job is to work hard for the Lord if you're a Christian. We'll talk, deal with that in a minute. But you, you should be obedient. Right? Now, we're not talking about things that are unethical right? or go against what God has commanded you to do in Scripture. We're talking about your boss telling you to do something that may be dirty and nasty. Like if you're in a restaurant and he says, hey, go clean that dirty toilet, you should, be, have, you should have the attitude of submissiveness, attitude of obedience. Right? You should be the last person as a Christian to give them lip, as we say in the South, you know, talking back to them. 
Right? I used to deal with a lot of teenagers, a lot of college students. And the thing that I used to teach my leaders is, is in the world we live in, these young men and young women, we're not only teaching them how to work at our specific location, but we are teaching them how to work in life. A lot of them hadn't been taught by their parents to, to even be on time for their jobs. So we're to be submissive. We're to obey the rules that are laid out before us. Now, in Australia, most work is governed by a work contract. You sign that contract. You need to follow through on that. But Paul says, look, slaves, not only obey, and that's the command, by the way. It's command to, to submit to authority. But he says, obey not with only external service, in verse 22, to merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So we're to obey with a sincerity of heart. Sincerity, I love this idea. It's, it's an idea of a singleness of focus, a genuineness, a frankness. So we're not only to obey, but we're to, to have the desire to serve, showing them respect whether they deserve it or not. And that's hard. You're the bad boss. I've been in situations in my life where the bosses are terrible, and I show them respect. I remember this one, I was working as a, a vendor and I was delivering a product to a, one of the shops and this, this, um, they would have receivers in the back of these grocery stores where that would receive the product and they had to check everything off. And this lady had this reputation of just being really hard to get along with, terrible to get along with. And all the vendors were war- warning me. They said, oh, she hates men. And I said, well, why does she hate men? Well, come to find out she was going through a terrible divorce. Her husband had cheated on her and was divorced her, and so she, she naturally took that animosity and she manifested on every guy. Well, in the course of getting to know her, one, one day, I remember this changed our relationship. I said, I said, uh, I said yes, ma'am, from the South, I'm showing respect. I, she said something, and I said, absolutely, I'll do that, yes, ma'am. And she goes, she goes well, don't, don't, call me, don't call me ma'am, I'm not old. And I said, it has nothing to do with age, I said, all to do with respect. And that moment on, her attitude towards me changed. She treated me with kindness. I got to know her a little bit, tried to help her a little bit in her relationship, you know, just some counseling. But, but she, she, she valued the fact that I was going to respect her, even though she was hard. It was a hard time with her as, as someone I was dealing with. So we had to do it with sincerity. And he says, not with external service. The word there for external is eye service. Right? That's one of those phrases that has continued to remain in our lexicons in many different languages throughout thousands of years. Right? If you say, hey, don't do something as eye service, you guys, you guys get it. Right? Don't do something just so somebody looks at you and they say, oh, he's working hard. And the minute they turn their back, you're, you're lazing off, you're goofing off, you're chilling, as they would say. Right? You're doing it, you work not to please men, but to please God. That's what Paul says here. And the application for these slaves, for us, is still the same way. We, we work for God. We don't work to please men. We please God. And the example is simple. You know, you're working on your computer. The boss is around. Oh, he's working hard. The minute the boss walks away, you're like, oh, checking the sports scores. Oh, I'm playing some video games over here. Oh, boss is coming back. I'm flipping back to the screen. I even saw an advertisement, I'm not saying you should buy this, saw an advertisement in a, in, a, in a magazine, and it was a little device that you could put on the side of your desk so that somebody walks by, it automatically flips your computer screen back to whatever you want it. So if you're looking at ESPN Sports, you know, Foxtel, it automatically flips it back to your work screen for you, right? So it's a device to help you get out of working hard. So we're to have that sincerity, we're to work to please God. 
And one of the things I would do in a, as, a, as a general manager of a restaurant is when we'd hire new team members, I would, we would always put them in the dining room. Now, we were a busy restaurant, busy. You just can't imagine how busy we were. We, were, we, were, we would have lines to the door uh, pretty much all day, just that busy. So we'd put, people's, put the new team members in the dining room. We would do it to teach them a couple things. One, to teach them the speed that they need to have as they work because they had to work quickly. We'd also do it to teach them service. And I would give them tasks on purpose, the, you know, just tasks that were hard. Like, hey, I need you to go clean those toilets. I need you to go clean that play area where that kid diaper busted without getting too gross, those kind of things. Hard tasks, dirty tasks, just to see how they would respond. Because how they responded told me if they really were going to make it in our culture or not. Because they responded with a genuineness and a cheerfulness and a desire to serve. Even if it was a terrible job, it showed me there was a lot of potential. If they complained and they moaned as a new team member, then just I kind of marked and said, yeah, they're not going to make it. Right? We just have a genuineness, a sincerity of heart. That submissive attitude is demonstrated in, in our sincerity and genuineness. And you know what? It's, it's governed. Paul says, look down in verse 22. He says, fear the Lord or fearing the Lord. So as a slave, you should have a genuine, sincere work desiring your boss, your master's best interest, desiring his good, desiring the, the job, the business's benefit in your heart, a genuine to see that business succeed and do your part to help it succeed. And you're to do it sincerely, but with the governing principle of the fear of the Lord. So when, when people come to you and say, hey, you know, James, you're over there on your computer and the boss leaves and you're still working hard while everybody else is goofing off. Why are you still working hard? Well, I'm working hard because I fear the Lord, right? Whether my boss sees me or not, the Lord sees me, right? We fear the Lord. It's an awe. You know, I... We, I come from Southern California. I lived there for many years, and you know it's kind of that surfer culture. You know, I'm I'm stoked, dude. You know, or that's awesome. You know, sorry, that's my best California impression as a Southerner. Um, but, but I hate that term, awesome. People use it. Oh, that's awesome, mate. That's awesome, man. No, no, I refuse to use it unless I'm talking about God. God is the only one that's awesome. That's that's worthy of our all. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is to be feared. He loves you as His child, but He's not your buddy. He's the God of all things, and He should be feared as you do your work. Right? We, we do it not for men-pleasing, but for God-pleasing. So that's the, that's the meekness in your work. And Paul says, look, let me tell you how to do your work. Let's look at verse 23. This is the manner of your work. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. He's talking to slaves, and the command here is do your work. Now, like I said, I've dealt with a lot of young men, young women, and it's amazing how often we have to go back and check their work, right? It sounds like a simple statement. Paul says to his slaves, do your work. Do what's been given to you. Do the responsibilities the task has been assigned. Now, one of the things I used to teach my leaders is we give people a measure of trust, right? We give them a little task to see if they can handle it, and we do a little task to see if they will complete that, and if they fulfill that commitment, 
they honor that trust by doing their job and doing it well, then we give them bigger and better things. Right? That's the same principle for us as believers. If we're faithful with little, we're given more. So there should be what? We should do our work. And not only do our work, do the things that have been assigned to us, whether we're a slave or an employee, but we should do that work heartedly. The idea is, is wholeheartedly. The word literally means out of the soul. So what we do always comes out of who we are. Right? I, I remember a junior, to use these examples from my own work experience. I remember a junior leader. He always wanted to move up. He promoted him to a leadership. He had a lot of leadership qualities. A young man, very smart, but he wanted to move up. He'd always come to me, I want to move up, I want to move up. And I would say, well, we gave him a particular area of the restaurant that he was responsible for, a big part of the restaurant, drive-through section. And, and, this, and we're, we're, by the way, we're a $10 million restaurant, so drive-through is 50% of our business. Young leaders say, hey, you're responsible for $5 million worth of our business. And like, what, what are you doing to help that part of the business succeed? What are your ideas? What things have you implemented? What systems have you put in place? How are you holding your team members under your accountable? What are the things that, that you're doing? Well, he would, he would rattle off a few things. I'm like, okay, keep doing those. Show faithfulness. Because we're trying to help this gentleman. He was a young, young man, trying to help him mature as a leader. Leaders aren't born, they're grown. It's my strategy. You, like, like watering plants. I got my lemon tree in my yard. It's taking a lot of work. Slowly is it slowly like bearing fruit. Same with leaders. Right? I'm helping this guy grow. Well, he would, still, he would still complain, but he was focused on what was in the future. Always what he wanted to be and never on what he was doing at the moment. Well, if we do our work heartily, we're focused on not the next job. We're focused not on the, the future promotion that we want, not on the raise. We're focused on the work we're being given at hand. You know, slaves were to work hard in their labors. They would demonstrate their sincerity they understand their fear of the Lord in how they would act. Like believers, my challenge to you is, is, is work with the right attitude. Work with a focused attention. Don't worry about the promotion. Don't worry about the, the next part of the, the, the raise that you want. Work with your attention on what you should be doing and focus in on excellence. We work with excellence. I used to teach my leaders, we, we don't expect perfection. There's no such thing. Right? There's only been one man that's perfect. His name is Jesus Christ, and I'm not him, and I don't play him on TV. Right? There's only one perfect man. We can't be perfect, but we can be excellent. Excellent is doing the best job you can based on what your knowledge and ability. Some people have less ability. Some people have less knowledge. Right? Our job as leaders, I used to teach them, is to, is to help them in that knowledge, help us see if we can increase their ability. But they want to do it to the best job. That new team member comes in that's sweeping the floor... Once I train them how to do it, I expect them to do it well. Your boss, if you're, if you're an employee, your boss expects you to work hard with sincerity, do your work wholeheartedly with a focused intent. Slothness and laziness is unacceptable when you're working for the Lord. Right? If you're going to present whatever you're doing, if you can imagine this is something I always would do. Uh, as a, when I started out in that particular restaurant, I worked in the kitchen, washing dishes. I used, to, I used to imagine it was, it was a hard job. I'm getting soaking wet washing dishes for a few hours. I used to imagine that, hey, if Jesus was going to eat off of this dish, would I, would I want him to, would I, 
what would it look like? If this pan, if I was cooking chicken for the Lord, what would He say about this pan? And that's the way I used to remind myself. Like, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm not doing it just to make this dish clean. I'm not just doing it for a paycheck. And that's what Paul says. He says, look, we, we work, do your work heartedly, and you do it for the Lord in verse 23 rather than for men. Like, when we work for the Lord, we do, it's really three aspects of that. We work for His glory. Right? When you're working hard, unlike people in the world who work sloppily and slovenly and lazily at times, or work self-seekingly, when you work for God, guess what? You reflect who He is. You, that excellence is shown. You think God was sloppily creating things? Right? It was perfect. It was good. Your work should reflect the nature of God. So when people look at you and say, well, why are you different? And they will, because I've had it happen to me. And you say, well, I work for the Lord, ultimately. That's my motivation. That's my manner. That's what my work looks like, as if I was going to present it to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we work to His glory. We work to please Him. Like, why would we want to work sloppily? It goes back to if you're going to present your work to God, why, is it, why are you doing it sloppily? And that's everything. Whether you're a mom at home, right? Whether you're the CEO of a company, why are you going to work sloppily? And one thing I think this is the big thing is your work is your ministry. Think about it like that. Your work is your ministry. The ministry isn't just, hey, I'm going to be a preacher. Or I'm going to be in the ministry. Your ministry is any task that God has given you. That's your ministry as a Christian. You honor Him. You don't think you have an influence? It was interesting over the years, I watched some of my junior leaders and employees as they grew and matured, and, and we'd have unbelievers and believers working for us. And it was interesting how the culture we developed, the, the unbelievers would, would over time say, you know, you guys are different here. Not only do you care about your employees, but your, your employees work hard even when they, you guys aren't watching. I've never seen that before. It was a testimony to what the faith in Jesus Christ that the, the employees, not just myself, but other employees demonstrated throughout the restaurant. So we do our work not for the Lord. Sorry, not for, sorry, not for ourselves or not for men, but we do it for the Lord. The details matter. And that's one thing you think about in excellence. You know, I've had this discussion with Peter and, and several elders, and we've talked about, you know, whether it's arranging chairs and, you know, we think about different things. But the details matter. Because, you know, when it comes down, if we're willing to compromise and be sloppy and lazy in little things, will we handle the things that matter, the Word of God, the worship, shepherding with excellence? Right? We want to have excellence permeate our life, because we're working. Whatever we do, we do it for the Lord, no matter what it is. It's, it's worship. And this is the thing. This is the principle that changes everything. Is your work is a ministry, your work is worship. Because if you're doing it for the Lord, then what are you doing? Then every act that you do is an act of worship. You present your bodies as living sacrifices. Your work is worship. How do you like that for changing attitude and focus? I'm washing dishes and I'm worshiping the Lord as I wash dishes because I'm working for Him. And I'm going to make sure these dishes are fantastic so that Jesus Himself could eat off these dishes. It changes your mindset. 
Same thing. Paul's talking to slaves. He's like, you know, you're bound in this slavery, but, but don't work just for your master. Work for Christ. Remember this guy? He worked as a... Uh, I don't know if they have these, these here. <clears throat> I, don't, I haven't been in the industry or talked to the guys in the industry that much, but they had specific garbage men, trash men, rubbish men, that would go around the different restaurants and they would collect the old meat. Right? That's all they did. Old meat. And these, you can imagine, I'm, as a vendor, I'm going around the back of these stores, these shops, and I'm waiting to get in sometimes, and these big trash trucks show up. And you can imagine in the 40-degree uh, heat, a truck full of nothing but rotting meat, a little stinky, yeah? And he would pick up the meat, and they would, and that, that's all they would do all day long. I remember, after, I got to know this one guy, I'd see him, you know, several times a week at different shops. And he'd go, hey, trash man. And he goes, hey, brother. And he, he, I got to know he's a Christian. And uh, I said, man, you know, that's a stinky job. I said, how do you, how do, you do it over and over? Like, and you get home and you take off your clothes and you change. And he goes, yeah, I do all that. And I said, well, well how do you do it? And he goes, man, I do it for the Lord. <laughs> and I just was like, praise the Lord, brother. That's the right attitude, right? It's the stinkiest job I could think of besides sewer worker. But he did it for the Lord. So that's the manner of your works. So you have, you have the, the meekness in your work, the submissiveness, the submissiveness, the obedience, the genuineness, sincerity, with, with knowing that, that there's a fear of the Lord involved in that. Then there's a, a, a method, the manner of your work where you do it wholeheartedly and you're doing it for the Lord. Then there's a motivation. Look in verse 24. He says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And the word there for knowing, it's a, it's a constant remembering, regardless of the task given. And you know what? The emphasis here is the Lord is at the very beginning of the sentence. In the Greek sentence, that's for emphasis. Is it for emphasis, right? So you have the Lord at the beginning. So it's from the Lord Himself, you will receive a reward. A reward. That's the motivation. A motivation that we, we, we work for the Lord knowing that we will receive reward even if you don't receive any recognition in this life for your hard work, you will receive recognition and reward in the next. Right? What, a, what a great motivation. That the Lord sees your toil. The Lord sees your sweat. The Lord sees that bad boss. The Lord sees the, the barely getting by because He's ordained those circumstances. The Lord knows your troubles and there will be a reward. Right? The idea for reward is something giving back, an, an exchange. When the reward is, is specific, he says, the reward is what? The inheritance. Now, I emphasize because the article is there. It's not just any inheritance. It's the inheritance that God has promised you. Well, what's that inheritance? Well, Paul says in his writings that the inheritance is the kingdom of God. The inheritance is your salvation. A future eternity in Jesus Christ's presence, sharing in His glory. What a, what a great inheritance. I love what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 is one of my favorite, well, favorite chapters, or favorite passages. It says, You obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's an inheritance which is what? It doesn't perish like gold and silver. It, doesn't, it isn't defiled. There's no evil in it. No corruption. It was not, it's not going to fade away. 
like a marble statue over time, and it's reserved, it's protected by God for you. It's a reservation waiting. It's a motivation for us to work hard. Look, in Genesis 29, the story with Jacob and Rachel, it's a beautiful story. But you think about Jacob. Jacob's name means deceiver, supplanter. Right? Genesis 29, he's already deceived his brother Esau. He's, he's running because he, he, uh, he believes, and probably rightly so, that Esau's going to kill him. So he's running away. Where does he run to? He runs to his family. He runs up to see his uncle Laban. And I, and I love the way the Lord works because here the deceiver meets someone who's his match. Laban's the deceiver himself. And he sees Rachel. And Jacob is smitten. Oh, I love Rachel. And he promises, I will work seven years for you. For, I'll work seven years for, for Rachel. That's what he tells Laban. And, and you guys know the story. Laban tricks him. Tricks him. And, and when he gets married, you know, they would wear veils or wear the, the, the outfits that cover their faces. And, you know, they're, they're having the wedding. It would have been at night. It would have been the easy thing to do. Leah and Rachel probably looked enough alike that it was easy to do. Deceived him. Behold, he woke up in the morning. I love that it says, Behold, he woke up and there was, Le- there was Leah or Leah laying back there beside him. Hey, what's going on? Laban said, Oh, it's our custom not to give the, give the youngest before the oldest. And so he has to work another seven years. But I love what, I love what Genesis 29, 18. It says, when, when Jacob agreed in Genesis 29, when he agreed to work for Rachel, it's, just a, it's a great statement. It says in verse 20, it says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because he loved her. What a great statement. Right? He worked seven years and they seemed but a few days. You know, Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your might. Because it's the love of Christ that governs our behavior as His servants. We're to work hard knowing that it's, it's, we, we, got, we garner His favor. We, we don't earn His favor. Remember, grace is undeserved, but we gain a reward. We gain an inheritance. Romans 8 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In those days, a slave was not privy to any inheritance. It was legally impossible for a slave to gain an inheritance. And here Paul is telling these slaves, and you, that you, that they have an inheritance. They have an inheritance in the future. They have a God who sees their labor, sees their motives, sees their heart, sees their toil, and will reward them. But not only is there a reward, there is a punishment if you refuse to obey. So don't think that just because you're a Christian, you can do sloppy work and get away with it. He says, the last sentence or the last phrase in verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now that could be translated as an interrogative, or as a statement, or a command. I, I believe based on the next verse, because he gives a, a reason that it's command. Serve the Lord Christ. Because if you don't, he says in verse 25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. The idea of wrong is injustice. 
You're doing what is not right according to God's standard. It's slaves, you think about a slave who is trusted, they have an easy opportunity to cheat their master. Many of you have given given tremendous amount of responsibilities at work. It from a from a logistical standpoint, for the sake of argument, it's relatively easy for you to cheat. You want something, you just take it. Right? Master, the boss, may never know. And that's the thing for slaves. And this would have been even more prominent in the sense that Onesimus stole from Philemon and escaped. Now, Philemon is where the church met. And you know, in God's providence, if you read the book of Philemon, it's, you had to love God's, God's providence, irony sometimes. Here, Onesimus, he steals from Philemon, takes money, runs away, and he travels all the way from Colossae, which is in Turkey. If you don't know where exactly where it is, talk to Peter. He just got back from that area. He traveled all the way from Turkey all the way to Rome. And guess who he meets in Rome? The Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul shares the gospel. He gets saved. But guess who's also there? This is often we forget this. Epaphras, the pastor of the church that meets at Philemon's house. <laughs> Imagine God's providence. Uh, oh, hey there, hey Paul, and oh Paul, you, oh you're from you're from Colossae. Do you know Epaphras? He's here visiting me. Uh... You see, Paul sent Onesimus back, sent him back, but he sent him back not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. He led him to the Lord. So if you're a slave, there there will be consequences if you disobey. So there will be consequences. You have a new identity in Christ, but that doesn't remove the consequences for poor work. It doesn't remove the consequences for, for acts of sin. And there's two ways those consequences work. There's, there's temporal consequences. right? You, you steal something, and one, you may get caught. right? If you get caught, what is that? Loss of reputation? Loss of job? Maybe persecution? I remember being in a big Walmart one day and I watched, I watched police officers walk in the front door, walk into the office of the, main, of the main store. This is one of the biggest Walmarts in the area. And they handcuffed the manager and they walked him straight down the front aisles out front door into a squad car. And I asked, I got to know the assistant manager, I said, what's going on? I said, well, I said, he just got arrested for embezzling $175,000. And there's consequences for sin in this life. And even if you don't get caught, there's consequences in the next. If you're a believer and your work is sloppy, lazy, or you're committing sin, then don't expect a reward. Expect a loss of reward. We all stand before the Bema judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And it says, look at what it says. It says, and God, what He has done, and there will be no partiality. The partial word partiality is favoritism. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can do what you want and say, well, I'm working for the Lord, you know, God's got my back. I can, I can work sloppily and I can work lazily. I can, I can steal time or steal money or do whatever I want to do because my, my eternity is secure. Sin has consequences. There's temporal and eternal. You know, a guy in high school, it would have been year 11, he, um, he worked for, a, for the shops, worked for a grocery store, and he, he worked hard. He was a good, uh, smart guy, and he, he gained their trust, and he used to close. Well, he decided, 
process that he was going to steal cases of beer. And he would take them out the back door and throw them in the, in the garbage rubbish bin. And then he'd go back later and pick them up. Well, two things he forgot. One, you're always seen doing something like that. And that's how he got caught. Another employee saw him and told on him. But then they went and looked at the camera. And they're like, well, why are you showing up after we're closed a few hours later and digging through the rubbish? It's kind of hard to deny that. You see, there were, there were consequences. Just as a slave, there were consequences. For us, there's consequences. Work hard. We're to be motivated by our love for the Lord and desire to serve Him. And we're to, we're to work hard, knowing that there's a reward for us in the future. But there's also punishment if we refuse to obey. So you have a, a meekness in your work. You have a, a, the manner of your work is to be for the Lord wholeheartedly. A motivation of your work is to, is to serve the Lord, to not serve men, knowing that you'll receive a reward, knowing there's a punishment. But there's also the master of your work. Look down in verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You see, a, slave, a master had legal authority over his slave, but, but Paul doesn't address the masters and say, hey, you have all these rights. He actually deals with the master's duty. He deals with God's expectations for him in regards to behavior. Can you imagine, all of a sudden, Paul's, they're standing up in the church and they're reading Paul's letter, and they go, slaves, you know, when you do what is wrong, you've got to expect consequences. Everybody in the congregation is going, yeah, that's right, there are consequences. And then all of a sudden he goes, masters, and everybody looks up and looks over at Philemon. Because right? they're all thinking about Onesimus. Because Onesimus is there. Colossians 4 says Onesimus showed up with Tychus and, they, and he handed the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, the two letters from Paul, Philemon and the letter to the Colossian church. And he said, here, read these. And Onesimus is sitting there in the congregation in Philemon's house and they're reading this letter about slaves. And they get to the slaves and masters part. You imagine all of them looking at Philemon. Paul says to masters, he says, look, grant your slaves justice and fairness. In other words, do what is right. The word justice is, is what is right according to God's standard. Right? We, they were to treat their slaves, and this is, this is where Paul elevates slaves. Right? He doesn't attack the institution of slavery because he's not trying to ferment a political rebellion because if you, if you advocate the end of slavery and two-thirds of the people in the Roman Empire are slaves, then you're talking about rebellion. And the Romans didn't look too kindly on rebellion. Just watch the movie Spartacus. You want a dramatized version. They didn't look too kindly on rebellion. They'd, they crush slave revolts. But Paul says he elevates he elevates these slaves and he says, look, masters, do what is right. He emphasizes the master's duty. We, we treat them with, he says, treat them with justice, what is right according to God's standard. Don't mistreat them, but treat them with fairness, with equality. We treat them, you treat them as what they deserve, as men and women with an inherent dignity created in the image of God. And if you're a believer, then you treat them, and they're a believer, you treat them as what? Fellow heirs. They're going to partake of the same inheritance that you are. It's Paul saying this to masters. So he says, grant them. And that word grant is a, it's a regular habitual action. You could say it, render your part. Do your part. Do what is right. And continue to do what is right. 
And he said, the motivation for you masters is that you have a master in heaven. That's the truth. The truth is reality as God sees it, right? So the truth is you have a master. If you're an employer or boss, treat your employees rightly. Don't cheat them. Don't lie to them. Seek their best good. One of the things I teach my leaders, for every employee who walks in, our desire is to make a positive impact in their lives. It's kind of hard to make a positive impact if you're cheating them. It's kind of make a hard, positive impact if you're not treating them well, with kindness. doesn't mean you can't ask them to do tough jobs. But the, the key here, and Paul brings slaves up, and he brings masters down to the same level. And if slaves are told to serve Christ and masters have a master, then what does that mean? They are both slaves. Right? The word doulos means bondservant. Over and over in Scripture, the apostles loved it. Jude 1.1, I'm a, I'm a doulos, I'm a slave of Christ. James 1.1, I'm a bondservant, I'm a slave of Christ. Paul over and over says, I'm a servant. The word, same word there, slave of Christ. Masters and servants, they're equal. They both serve the same master. And there's a wordplay here. Over and over when Paul says masters, it's the word kurios. It's the word for Lord. So if you were to go in and if you write in your Bibles, you can do this. If you write on a piece of paper, every time Paul says slaves, every time he says master, you could write the word little l, Lord. Every time he says Lord, you could write what? Capital Lord. So he's contrasting Lords and Lord, Lords and Lord. And at the very end, he says, hey, Lords, hey, Masters, you have a Lord. Hey, hey, Masters, you have a Master. You're all slaves. Transforms your idea of work a little bit, doesn't it? It's worship, right? We're to work hard. Doesn't mean masters and masters. It doesn't mean employers. If you're a boss, that you can't discipline your, your charges and you can't hold to a standard. Fire plenty of people in my life, right? They either are lazy, right? Or sometimes it's just not a good fit. We would do it as a documentation process where, where my goal is to help them get better. And if they, they either refuse the help or it's not working, then sometimes you have to terminate. We would call, we would call it demoting them to customers, right? We, we, would, we would ask them and help them to go find some other employment, and honestly, when you think about something for an employee, and some of you have been let go in your life, I, have, I know how it feels. We look back and we say, hey, that was a good thing for us. If you've ever been let go, taught you important lessons, maybe it was a kick in the butt that you needed, right? Maybe it was just helping you to find something that something else God wanted you to do. It's the same thing as an employer, right? If you're working hard, I used to get so many, it was interesting, I get employees would come to me and say, hey, I want more hours, want more hours. The employees that worked hard with a good attitude never had to ask me for more hours. If you're working hard and, you have, and, and you're doing your job, fearing the Lord, right, and you're not lazy, then that's a testimony to Christ, right? The employees that aren't are the ones that I had, I would try to help them because I'd invested time and energy and I had their interest at heart, but there were times when I had to let them go. And I, would, and I would tell him, and one of my leaders, he, he's a, he was another pastor, he would remind me, he goes, hey, brother, we, we know it's hard, but we're not God. It's not our responsibility to, to look after every aspect of their lives. We have to look after the business that he's given us. 
because we're going to be held accountable. God's going to look after them, even as a Christian. God's going to look after them. And it was amazing because even a couple of young ladies that I, I had to let go because they weren't a good fit, they went on and found better and better things. One in particular, she was really artsy. Very, she was a slow worker, took her a while to get things, but she, was, she could draw and she could sew. And, and she, she started her own little side business after we let her go. And she's doing well and doing the things that she has the gifts for. Look, Paul gives instructions here to masters and slaves, and he does it, and he takes them out of the normal convention. He makes them equals. He takes the focus off slaves being obedient to, to their masters because the law requires, and he says that, hey, you're all equal. You're all slaves of Christ. You're to work heartedly. You're to have a meekness in your work in that you're to be obedient. You're to do it with the right mindset, a sincerity. And you're to do your work for the Lord, knowing that He's watching, that He's your motivation, that you do it out of love, no matter what the task is. And you do it no matter how hard it is and how tough it is, knowing that you're going to receive a reward. Even if you don't receive it in this life, you will receive it in the next. Unless you think that God doesn't see, there is consequences for sin and there is consequences for laziness. And then ultimately... You have a master. You're a slave. I'm a slave. We're all slaves of Jesus Christ. Because we have what? We've been bought with a price. That's what that term means. It's a slavery term. It all goes back to the cross. Jesus bought us with a price. 1 Corinthians 6. And if we've been bought with a price, Paul says, you are not your own. You belong to God. We glorify the God in our bodies. Because we are His slaves. We do all things for His honor. Alex is right. It's a great way to start the new year. We, we do all for God's glory. We do all for His honor. Like instruments. You think about musical instruments. right? There can be beautiful instruments. But are, are they really worth anything if they're not played? Right? We're instruments in the Lord's hands. Right? The instruments don't bring honor to themselves. Nobody says, hey, that's a great trumpet. They say it's a great trumpeteer. Or that's a great violin. No, it's a great violinist. You see, instruments don't have a will of their own. Instrument doesn't play the notes that it wants. It plays the notes that it's told to play. We're instruments in the Lord's hands at His direction. He's our master. So hopefully today you've seen Paul's points, you see his principles that you should have a meekness in your work. There should be a manner to your work, the motivation for your work, and ultimately there is a master of your work. You've been redeemed, you've been reconciled. Brethren, work for the Lord. It's an act of worship. It's your ministry. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... Your word is applicable to our lives. Your word is challenging. Your word convicts. I pray, Father, that each and every one of us would work with excellence, knowing that our work is an act of worship. It's to be to you out of the depths of our hearts, from a sincere heart, a genuine heart. Lord, help us to see our work as ministry, knowing that the people we come into contact with, they want to know why we, we work hard, we're diligent. We have an opportunity to share about your love for us, how you've changed us. We have an opportunity for the gospel. 
Father, that's our ministry. Do good to others, to work hard, to be an example, to demonstrate that we are truly born again, that we are truly Christians by our behavior. Not only in our lives of our family, our friends, and people here at church, but among our work associates. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would glorify your name through each one of us in our lives, at our works. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.